Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Finos Open Source and Finance Podcast, and I'm your host, Grizz Griswold. In this episode of the podcast, Salona Bonewald of IEEE SA Open talks about understanding the inner source checklist that was originally developed while she was at PayPal. And she is also joined by Claire Dillon of Intersource Commons to discuss uh, how this checklist can be built upon um, for maybe continuing the maturity matrix that the Finos Open Source SIG is now discussing, plus other questions about Intersource in general. So let's cue the music. Uh, today, we're pleased to have uh, Salona Bonewald, Executive Director from IEEE SA Open. And here's a little bit about Salona. Salona Bonewald is currently the Executive Director for IEEE SA Open, a comprehensive platform offering the open source community cost-effective options for uh, developing and validating their projects. Salona is the author of Understanding the Inner Source Checklist, which she'll be talking about today. Um, that she developed while she was director of Intersource at PayPal. Salona has also held the role of vice president of community architecture at Hyperledger, a global open source collaborative effort hosted by the Linux Foundation, of which Finos is a part of, uh, where she was where she integrated leaders of finance, banking, uh, Internet of Things, supply chains, and manufacturing. Other notable career accomplishments include, while at Siemens AG, um, creating a cutting-edge and six-sigma-compliant six e-commerce website, and for Ubisoft, um, creating an international content management content, or system architecture. Uh, today, Salona is, again, speaking on understanding the inner source checklist, and at some point today, she'll be joined by Denise Cooper, who's co-founder of Intersource Commons. Um, and she's an open source legend, and I would give you a longer bio, but you probably already know her. Um, please send your questions through either chat or there's actually a Q&A, and we'll ask them at the end. Uh, Salona will present, and then we'll kind of open things up after that. Uh, and with that, Salona, uh, the virtual floor is yours. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for um, inviting me to come and present at this. I really appreciate it. Um, always love to come back and uh, talk more with the the fintech industry. So um, yeah, so I think one of the first things to talk about is what is Intersource? And it, just to give a, a basic overview for anyone new joining, it's about you know taking open source tools, techniques, ethos, and applying it on an enterprise level. So a lot of times in Intersource, when they talk about public, they often mean public within the enterprise. That's one reason why PayPal was so interested in it. It's because remember, PayPal is not just PayPal. It's Venmo, it's Braintree, it's a bunch of other business acquisitions. And so how do you actually work together with all of those different teams to integrate better? And so that was uh, a big point in regards to why PayPal itself was interested in Intersource and doing it. Uh, often in the fintech world, you can't be 100% open source due to legislations and regulations and things of that nature. So. It's a safe way to do that and to bring some of that uh, collaboration in. Um, <clears throat> one little side note that I'd like to put in there is be careful with it. Um, because a lot of times we found people misspeaking in regards to um, what Intersource is. A lot of times it became a buzzword to, instead of saying collaborating, 
they would say, oh, let's just go intersource it. But intersourcing is an actual process. And one of the things that we do a lot at the intersource commons is define what those processes are and come to some common understandings about when some, what some of those processes are. And that's one reason why um, we decided to do the checklist and to create a booklet on it to sit there and say, here's some of the things that it is. And also here's some of the things that it isn't. I think a similar um, example would be things like software design. It's like you can do, or, or software implementation. You can do um, waterfall and you can do agile. And really the steps are the same, right? You discover, you design, you implement, you test, you feedback, and then you do it again. It's just, it's a very different scale, right? With agile, you're doing it very shortly. And then on um, waterfall, you're doing it over years and you do those different things for different reasons. Um, <clears throat> similarly with intersource, it is different than just open source. And there are some different tools and techniques that you can use that are a little bit more targeted towards business and business concerns. So, you know, that's one of the things that I'd like to premise it with. And also if you want to learn more about some of that, going to the intersource commons website, um, especially one of my favorite parts is the patterns section, which has all the different um, patterns and tools and things that people are trying out and they can do it under Chapman House rules, which means um, you can talk about your basic processes that you're doing, but you can do it in a way that you're anonymous so that you're not outing yourself or outing your business, but instead saying they're saying, oh, we tried this, this is how it worked, or a group of us tried that and this is what worked and this is what didn't work. And that way you're not, you know, um, uh, offending anything in regards to NDAs or PR or things of that nature. So I really highly recommend going over there and seeing that because there's a lot of very constructive help in regards to that. So when doing intersource, the intersourcing checklist, one of the main reasons we created that was because of the fact that we did want to have a process at PayPal where you could have official intersourcing projects, which basically meant that those projects went and did special things to make themselves very ready and to collaborate with others. Not all the teams at the very beginning at PayPal were interested in doing intersource. Some of them were very afraid of it and there was much that we had to overcome in regards to that. And so one of the reasons that I would recommend, you know, picking up the booklet, you can download it for free off of the Intersource Commons website is more about seeing if your business is ready for this. And have you asked all of the internal questions that you really need to ask yourself? In fact, I wrote it in kind of a funny style where at the very beginning of each chapter is an LTDR, you know, too long, didn't read, um, that you can have just your upper management read, which is basically just the main points of each of the chapters. And then in the chapters, we go into the detail and we explain a little bit more about why this is important, or I can tell an anecdotal story as to why we did the different things this way that most people I believe can relate to. And so it really is about getting used to understanding what this means for your company, because it is all about collaboration, though I wanna be careful, like I said in the beginning, it's not just collaborating, it's collaborating with a certain style, with a certain format, with certain constructs in place to enable it to work better. And it's also about dealing with the silos. 
because what happens in businesses, especially um, in businesses like PayPal or Expedia or some of the others that are also doing intersource, they have a lot of separate business units. And often these business units have joined versus you know, acquisitions. And you want to be very gentle in regards to how you do those cultural integrations. And Intersource allows you to be able to do that so that people can do it in a graduated fashion. And so that's one thing that I think that's really important in regards to the checklist is figuring out what that graduated um, fashion is going to look like for you and your company and your group so that you can sit there and say, oh, well, first we probably should require these things or maybe we should require those things instead. I don't think at this point, it's really one size fits all. I think it's going to be very much you sitting down and figuring out what your culture is. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we found when we were first launching Intersource is that um, the big companies really needed it first. And then also the companies like um, FinTech, where you've got a lot of regulation, a lot of fear, a lot of structure, a lot of need for compliance, they also really needed it first. And they really did need those structures. While a lot of startups and a lot of smaller companies were automatically doing intersource. In fact, the Android team at PayPal, when I came in and started talking with them, they had already implemented a ton of the structures that uh, we were wanting the rest of the company to implement. And the reason they had done that is because so many of them when PayPal hired them already came from the open source Android community. And so they were like, oh no, we want things structured this way. These are the things that we need. Here's the processes that we want in place. I also found that to be really true with a lot of the recent college grads because in universities uh, especially and all a lot of the um, programmers that are learning it by themselves start off with open source because that's the easiest way to figure out how to go and work with the group is to go into an open source project and go, okay, great. Where can I start? Where can I code? How can I figure these different things out? And so when they came in to PayPal, they were thrilled that we were working this way. Um, and some of them even made the decision to choose us over other options because of the fact that we were working in this intersource fashion, which was much more familiar to them from their college coding experiences doing open source work. It also meant that we got some really high quality programmers too, because instead of doing those silly whiteboard interview questions, we could go look at their code. Not only could we look at their code, but we could go and look at how they interacted with the community itself and sit there and see how much of a team player is this individual? How good are they at working with others? Um, how collaborative are they? Um, how do they do on their documentation? You know, what is the quality of their code? Um, we could go in there and get all of that information long before we hired them, which was nice, needless to say. And it also became part of the hiring process is one of those things was looking for um, those examples beforehand and having those be available to um, the directors before they did the hiring processes. So very good thing to see. So some of the basic pieces that I think are really important to first highlight in regards to Intersource is um, <clears throat> passive documentation. And I kind of just hinted at that a little bit talking about looking at those open source developers. When you do open source and you do it well, you create a trail of documentation as you're going along. You create a trail in the chat 
where you're talking with them and they're saying, I'm thinking about doing this feature, what do y'all think? And everybody goes back and forth and system says, well, I'm thinking this, well, I'm thinking that, well, I'm thinking these different things. And that's a really good thing to capture. And it's a very good thing to capture in business because a lot of times that's sometimes where that business rationale may exist. And you might not have it in other places because it's hard to get that level of interaction between tech and business strategy sometimes. And so if you go in there and look at that, you can actually go and grab that out and use that for later. <clears throat> It's also very informative to the product owners themselves or um, the scrum masters or whoever's doing the middle management because they can go in and say, oh, hey, this is something that's going on on my team. Is this gonna change our timeline? Is this gonna change interaction with another product? Are any of these things going to happen? And you can sit there and you can see that happening ahead of time. I think that's why so many teams right now have been doing things like moving over into Slack is so that they can actually have that type of interaction and have that uh, uh, micromanagement without being uh, intrusive um, so that you can actually sit there and kind of keep an eye onto the chatter, but not have to sit there and bother people for every single point in detail as you're going along. So uh, it's the non-negative aspects of that. And then also it's about findability. Uh, when you sit there and you have all of these different discussions taking place, it's easier for other teams and other business units to see that those are taking place and know that maybe the trail has been blazed ahead of them. And they can go, oh, so they're go going through right now and say they're reworking a currency tool and we have our other currency tool over here. How do we go through and collaborate with them in regards to that and sitting there seeing the different things that they're, count that they're interacting with? like say perhaps having a credit card processing issue for the new legislation in Brazil or something along those lines. You can sit there and see that and have those types of communication. Um, and because of it all being searchable and findable, you can start to um, get the entire company used to even looking, which I thought was kind of a big cultural shift at, um, at PayPal. People were used to going and checking Reddit and Stack Overflow and some of these other places for solutions, but they weren't used to doing it internally. And once we were able to come in and intersource and have all that information available and have it searchable, they were able to come in and look and go, oh, who's already been working on this? Or, oh, I know that there's got to be a currency tool here somewhere. Who has one that I can use rather than me reinventing the wheel for the 30th time? And so you were able to go in there and do that. The other thing that's really important in regards to doing intersourcing is this is something to capture from open sourcing, which are the roles and responsibilities aspects. And that's going to be a new learning curve for your teams. Uh, oftentimes they, they might not be used to those structures. Um, some may, if you've already been using something like um, GitHub Enterprise internally, where they are used to having maintainers, but sometimes I find that they end up being a little bit lazy in that they don't go through and create things like a maintainer's agreement or the contributing agreement where everyone sits there and says, here are the different things that we're doing and here are our roles for that. So one of the things we talk about a lot in open source and you, know, you can call it whatever you want, but it's the trusted committer. And basically that's kind of like the, the uh, engineering coding lead who sits there that does the validation on the code. And oftentimes you wanna have multiples of that where um, we find that it's, it's often, and this is in the patterns, a one to 10 relationship, maybe a one to five relationship in regards to that lead being there and being available to review all of the code. 
they also often have a bit of an architectural leaning um, so that they can sit there and see the code that's coming in and devise it out well so that for the different approvals, it's not necessarily does the code not have any bugs in it, but it's also does this work um, in regards to the larger scope of things. And then the thing that I found to create the most velocity by a long shot is encouraging middle management and the, um, the, pro the open planning aspects of it between the product owners. And that's where I saw crazy velocity at the very end of my um, PayPal stint, where I went from doing InnerSource to being the director that had Altus, which was basically our orchestration tool from co coding ideation to deployment to production, enterprise search, and then failed developer interactions monitoring so that we could see on that orchestration piece what pieces were failing when and where. And by going in and doing that and doing that entire thing in an open way to the rest of the company, we were able to obtain some crazy velocity where we, first of all, we took the platform and we made it very API centric. And then we went out to a bunch of the other different groups within PayPal and integrated them in. So we were able to integrate in CI, CD um, and database as a service as two examples, but we also did 15 other features in a year because of the fact that we came in and had this open planning methodology where first of all, we outreached to all of the other business units saying, we're doing this. Let us know what you think of those APIs. Also, let us know what we think about the fact that we're monitoring your tools and how it's performing. And then also by coming in and having it very easy for like the database group to come in with their database as a service, it was only mostly a question of UX in regards to the integration process. There was some other you know, minor pieces, but for the most part, it was able to be done very quickly in about a two to three month timeframe, depending on how you measure it. So um, I highly recommend looking at that for not just the developers, but taking it out a notch and looking at it for your product and your product owners and things of that nature. And through that was really where I got the breakdown of silos because silos exist in business for a reason, as I'm sure many of y'all are aware of in that if you don't have silos, you have communication problems in that there's too much information, there's too much stuff going on, there's just, it's just too much. And that's why people naturally form these silos of information is because it makes it way easier to know what's happening and what's going on and everybody understands the structure and it reports down and then flows back up again and everybody knows what, that's, what that is. But in a business, especially in a business that has all of these different business units, it can really inhibit the amount of um, cross collaboration that happens. And so InnerSource becomes a way to kind of start poking holes in those silos to sit there and say, oh, well, you know, I was searching and I found this and your team over here was doing this and we're about to be doing that. Is there a way that we could collaborate on that? Or I noticed that you're over here and you're doing this and that this is happening. Is there a way that we could collaborate on that? And then because of the fact that they're starting to do that collaboration and because of the fact that hopefully they're middle managers and they understand how to report up in regards to the business value of that, they can more accurately um, reduce costs for the business. And so what happened at PayPal is, thank God, Denise won over the CEO and he talked a lot about one team and it actually became a deliverable for upper and middle management to sit there and show one team behaviors. 
And guess what's a wonderful representation that's measurable of one team behaviors? Inner sourcing. So it became uh, one of those things where they could report out and up that they worked with this team to collaborate to create this and reduced this much cost or saved this much money. Um, and they could go through and do that for each of the different ones, which helped intersourcing to spread throughout the entire uh, company. So that was really nice and that eventually we didn't have to advertise it internally anymore. Instead, they were way more convinced by having worked with a team who said, oh, I worked with this team over here and this worked great for them. So we wanna learn how to take advantage of this and what do we need to do to be able to. Um, one of the things that I found for a lot of it is it didn't always save money um, if you were taking a long-term view, but it did save time. And by going in and saving time, you also save money. So, and there was the other interesting aspect of having that collaboration that it's hard to measure how much money is saved in regards to that. But I think we all know that when our teams know and are friendly to doing a certain amount of cross collaboration, it does save us time and money because it does help create, you know, a, um, a feeling of empowerment in regards to the staff. And I think that's one thing that often gets left behind on all of this is the fact of how much happier the staff is when they start doing intersourcing versus the previous models. Because previously, you know, it wasn't okay to cross those silos and it's not okay to go look at the other things that other people are doing. And they feel very, you know, um, uh, blinded. Um, in regards to that in their work. And instead it opens it up. And like I said, those recent college grads that you get coming in, it's a huge cultural shift. They can't handle the blinders. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. And so the fact that they can sit there and do the type of work that they're very used to doing in regards to being very collaborative, doing the reuse portions, all of that is very much so um, there for them. So, um, and then by going in and setting those boundaries through the different rules that you do have helps a lot. And I think that's one reason why it's so important that it's the intersourcing process, because what happens with the um, maintainers manuals or the collaboration agreements or things of that nature, it allows each of those code bases to share, but have a certain amount of autonomy. You know, for example, you might have a code base that's kind of old, been there a while, little rickety and it needs some special house rules. I talk a lot about my um, the house rules analogy, which is basically when you come into different people's houses, they need different levels of um, security or privacy or you know be careful that one sink, you know the uh, right is hot and the left is cold or the you know that sort of thing. And so they have that kind of documentation ready. And they might also have a higher level of risk, you know, say you're touching a code base that, you know, has a high level of risk, they need to have more rules. And everybody in the company can then sit there and read them and understand, oh, that code base has a lot of rules because it's, it's fragile or it's got, you know, um, uh, compliance things that it needs to meet or it has, you know, something along those lines. They can sit there and define that for each of those code bases. So anybody coming in and looking at it going, oh, I wanna use that can go, oh, can I? Oh, if I do, how do I? Okay, great, all right. And then they know what they can go in and do and it's already there. It's also great because it helps with new onboarding of employees because the new people come in and 
that team's already written up all their rules. They've already written up what their contributing agreement is, what their team agreement is, all that kind of stuff. So when the new person comes in, they can go, oh, okay, this is how I engage with this team. Great. And so it makes that easier as well. So created a checklist in the book. It's kind of long. <laughs> and uh, it's just getting longer. So um, let me tell you a little bit about the evolution as to what's been happening with the checklist. So first of all, the checklist changed a little bit when um, I took on those three projects that I talked about, about orchestration of code and um, enterprise search and reporting on failed developer interactions. That's when we started to look deeper in regards to intersourcing and really how can we do some crazy velocity on this, right? It's like, oh, okay, if I'm monitoring all those internal tools that people are using and I'm telling you this one's working really great and this one isn't, that helps people out. It sets their expectation. It lets them know how many times should I hit myself across the head trying to fix this or maybe I should go, you know, or maybe I should go ahead and talk to that team and things of that nature. <clears throat> Excuse me, sip of water. The next piece is, is because of going through and doing those APIs, that also helped a lot. Interoperability is really important in regards to being able to work with those other teams. So it's great to have a code base that's open and such, but if there's no hooks and there's nothing to actually grab onto, it becomes a little harder. Um, but a lot of times though, through intersourcing, one of the things that we found, especially on the payment side, once we intersourced it and they worked with all of those other teams that needed those hooks, everybody understood exactly what those hooks needed to look like. And they wouldn't have been able to do that had they not had this process in place. Um, previously, it ended up being a little bit too political, a little bit too interrupt driven, where um, features would bubble up and say, oh, I really, really need this. So therefore we will make the team do that. Instead of making the team do that, have the team create the APIs so that you can do that. Um, things of that nature. And so that's one uh, huge burst that we got from doing that. And then the next one is just the plain old tooling. CI, CD, uh -huh. lots of open source um, groups use it because the continuous integration and continuous development makes it easier to do the testing, to do all the different things in regards to the viability and the safety and the security of this code base so that you can trust it. Um, <clears throat> obviously, uh, deploying to production at PayPal is not a simplistic thing um, for a very obvious reasons because of the risk that's involved in regards to it. But by going in there and productionalizing all of that and having a lot of those different steps in place and automating more and more of that, you can more safely do those different pieces. And I think that's a really big win that you can get from intersourcing as you start to move up that maturity ramp. And so then go, oh, okay, not only are we having our teams work together, but now we're having our code bases work together and now we're having our tools working together and things of that nature. Um, and so then that's when I moved over to Hyperledger. And the funny thing about it is I was able to take the intersourcing stuff and bring it on back to the open sourcing side of things so that they could work together well. And with Hyperledger, uh, you have some volunteer coders, but let's be realistic. Um, the majority of them are corporate. And, uh, and so you basically had the same problem at PayPal, but on a whole other political scale. Right, because now you've got all of these major giants that are all venturing into blockchain who all need to play well together. 
And so taking some of those same lessons in regards to things like open planning and bringing all of that back onto just the simpler solution was the wiki so that everybody could sit there and talk about the different places where they were at and share all of that. And then also taking that back up to um, the technical steering committee where they ended up serving as that architectural function to sit there and say, oh, these do fit in, these don't fit in. This is how these things can work together. Oh, we would really like if you worked on these interoperability pieces or these tools and can come in there and do that. And so we kind of took some of those learnings from open source, from inner source and brought it back over into open source, especially when you consider the corporate communications that have to take place. So um, some of y'all may be in a place where you have business units who do need to stay financially separate, probably for taxation reasons. Um, <clears throat> so you can go and look at some of these other different constructs for going in there and doing that so that they can remain separate but still collaborate and work together better. Um, the other thing that we found to be super useful there was the open planning. So even before it had to bubble up to the technical steering committee, the groups themselves could um, bring up a lot of the different pieces. And for that, we found that um, <clears throat> interoperability between the tools that they were using to communicate was very important. Uh, when you start going global, you start having different tooling sets and you start having different tooling sets that are required. Um, so if you are working with APAC, for example, uh, <laughs> you might've heard of something called the Great Firewall. <laughs> and when you go in and you have to do that, you have to sit there and figure out what are the tools that you can use between those different entities so that they can still collaborate and work together. Um, one of the things that we did at Hyperledger is we, had, we were using a tool called Rocket Chat and it has an open API. And so um, in China, of course, they were using WeChat, which is the default. Um, and then in Russia, they were using Telegram and all these different groups were doing that. And so one of the things that we asked them to do is create APIs. So at least their chat could propagate and be searchable on a centralized tool so that everybody could find and see what they're up to and then be able to um, go to them individually and engage. And so, you know, there was a centralization factor that I highly recommend, especially if you're doing globalization um, or localization with the different languages. You have to figure out a way so that everybody can still find and talk and speak with one another. <clears throat> so then, you know, IEEE came up and I think I should explain what that is. Um, so it's IEEE and then SA stands for standards and then open. And so for that, we're kind of taking a lot of the lessons that we learned from InterSource and now we're applying it on a global level. IEEE has over 420,000 members around the world in like, I believe 180 countries or something like that. And so how do we take a bunch of these learnings and you know, uh, express that for the rest of the world? And one of the biggest things that we saw was role diversity. And that came into play because of business. Um, from doing that open planning, I was like, oh, we can make this even bigger, not just the product owners, but all of the different pieces of what it takes to make a product. So what does it take to make a product? Well, you have to have the users. So we took that and we created something called the um, community advisory group. And that's like the nonprofits, the educational groups, the foundations, all of those different groups, they kind of hold that into place. And then we have the marketing advisory group, which is a little bit of a misnomer, but we kind of like shortening it to mag. So, you know, eh. 
um, but it's marketing and evangelism and social media and metrics and all of those different things. So they can have a voice and a representation to help the programmers create better products and let everybody know that those products are there and available. And then we created the, um, the technical advisory group, which yes, does recommendations on how do you create a technical steering committee or things of that nature, but also make sure to involve those levels that we were just talking about, the product owners, the architects, the code reviews, all of those different aspects. And then what we're doing from that is each of those advisory groups now have subgroups. And so for example, the technical advisory group is having a subgroup that's getting started right now on security, where they're talking about security and compliance and things of that nature. The, um, the community one has a, one called education where they're talking about the educational needs of both universities in K through 12. The um, marketing advisory group now has an OSINT group, which is the open source intelligence group, which is basically how do we go in and gather up the data that the products are going to need, but we do that in an ethical and um, kind fashion. And so we're going through and creating all of that because th we can um, get the full productization of it. So we're kind of taking the inner source learnings of our out product and then bringing it back over into open source. And on that, what we're doing right now is we're doing a lot of templates. And for the templates, they've, they've been stealing a lot from this book right here <laughs> in regards to saying they're saying, oh, what are some of the major things you should have in a contributing agreement? Oh, here it is in the checklist. Oh, what are some of the major things we should have here and there and doing all those different pieces so that first we can get them templatized. Even the marketing group is getting in on that too, where they're doing templates on um, adding things to the calendar, finding different events, creating a social media toolkit for each of the different projects that may come in onto the platform, things of that nature. And so they're going, oh, here's some basic templates. Why are we doing that? Well, one, make life easier, totally. But two, remember that second part of the name, the SA? That stands for standards. This entire platform was invented to support standards at IEEE. <clears throat> so what that means is we need to have any of the different assets, be it open source, open hardware, or open data on the platform adhere to a certain level of standards, but to a certain level of compliance to do all of those different things so that it will be safe and trusted on our platform. And so we're going to the point now where we're templatizing so that we can automate and then we can standardize and then we can do things like certification and compliance testing. And so that's part of the, the um, pathway that we call you know, going up to the maturity level of open source. And I think that this is another piece that we can then take back over to InnerSource and use on a corporate level too, especially as um, <clears throat> most corporations understand the importance of participating in standards. Well, this would um, be yet another aspect of that to participate in as well. So that's the plan. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, I think um, they post a lot of notes. Um, you can also uh, get a hold of me at um, the um, IEEE chat channel. I'm just at Salona. So you can uh, find me there as well. And uh, I guess, is it time for questions? Yes, we're uh, getting there right now. Um, thank you so much. That was awesome. Um, uh, and I was reading your book the entire time. 
Wait, no, I was listening to you. No, I'm confused. <laughs> so I'll have some questions too. But um, um, but before we go into that, uh, we're going to go into Q&A. So if you have any questions, um, please uh, put that into the Q&A section. Um, or if you would rather speak and actually um, converse with people, um, we can do that too. And I can promote you to the panelist or... Um, or I, I believe that I have the, the button to allow you to talk, which is seems so bad. But um, uh, but uh, so let me know if you'd like to speak to Salona or Claire. Um, uh, one quick thing uh, we do have uh, in each of our webinars and meetups, we like to give out T-shirts um, as uh, something nice to make us feel like we're almost in a room together, like a, a regular meetup. Um, but I was going to let you know, and I did a random number generator type thing. Um, uh, Sean Hatley of Refinitive and then Christina Coffey. I'm not sure where she, uh, Christina's from, but uh, both of you have uh, one T-shirt. So uh, uh, Al, um, who works for us at Finos, will get in touch with you and uh, send you an email to find out your physical address. Uh, Solana will need yours, too. By the way, um, I, I know in Austin, but I don't. But Austin's fairly big. Um, so, um, <laughs> gotcha. um, well, I'm going to hand things over to uh, Claire Dillon. Uh, Claire Dillon is uh, working at, with uh, marketing and outreach for Intersource Commons. She is also the secretary of the newly formed Finos Intersource Special Interest Group. Um, and Claire will kind of lead Q&A. I know Claire will have some questions directly for you, Salona. Um, Aaron Williamson might step in and James McLeod might step in, too, with some questions themselves. So, um, uh, so Claire, I'm going to hand it over to you. I'm going to go on mute. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Grace. And thank you, Salona, for that amazing talk. That was that was absolutely fantastic. It's brilliant to see um, how the checklist has been evolving. It's it's one of the most popular downloads we have on Intersource Commons as well. So it's, it's great to see that. Um, I'm going to start by encouraging every one of the attendees to actually write in a question. I know that this is a really interesting topic for the folks who have been involved in the Intersource SIG at Finos, because in our last SIG meeting, it explicitly came up about the fact that, we, that, that folks were looking for checklists to help people assess their readiness. So I know there's plenty of questions out there, so I do, will encourage all the attendees to think of one and stick it in the chat. But while we're waiting for that, I do have a few. Um, one particular question uh, that came up in the SIG conversations uh, was related to the fact that, you know, when people are trying to start their inner source journey, it was noted that uh, a lot of people may already be, be doing behaviors that may actually be a part of the way on their inner source journey, but they may not call it inner source. So I'm just going to ask, like, are there any particular checklist items that you found that people were automatically already checking off before they had even heard about the inner source checklist or the inner source efforts at PayPal? Sure. I think the, the ones that um, I've done the most often are all the ones that are coding related. And I think that is because of the fact that um, so many coders already work on open source projects, and especially if they're doing anything that already has to integrate with open source code. So if you're doing things like, you know, uh, any group that I found doing an app, for example, like they're a company where they're doing apps and things like that to run on Android and such, they're already familiar, right? They've already, they, they know some of those different things. They know, oh yeah, we should have a, a maintainer's agreement. Oh, we should have trusted committers who review code, you know, things of that nature they knew that they needed to have. 
Um, I think the funny thing that happened on some of those is um, while they might've had that, they weren't always necessarily sharing across the thing. So it's just kind of funny that they created it for themselves, but they didn't always know how to like get that out there to the rest of the community sort of thing or the rest of the company. And so that was like a, an interesting dynamic that I saw a lot. Um, the other pieces uh, that I see companies doing often is architecture, um, realizing that they do need to have that architectural review component and working together on that. So that would be a piece where they were often doing that. And then, you know, um, in a good, a really good company, you do have all that middle management coming together and talking about the product itself and doing those different pieces. And so I, I believe that that was happening. It just wasn't always public to the rest of the company. And instead, you know, the normal way that they would do it is they would have initiatives. And those are good. I, I love initiatives because they're all about prioritization, but it's not enough, you know? So they weren't always necessarily doing that. Um, I did find that internal search, enterprise search was one that several different groups had, um, been working on, especially some very large ones, which I thought was very interesting, though they were having technical problems because they used the data lake instead of the data hub model. Um, but, you know, that's another issue that, uh, <laughs> you know, is a little too near and dear to my heart. Um, but yeah, th th those are the things I found that people were already naturally doing is because they understood the coding piece and they were going in and doing those different things for having that. Um, but uh, I found that if they didn't actually do the inner sourcing piece where everybody knows about everyone, they weren't always as good on those code reviews as they thought they were. So, so that's that's really interesting. And I see some questions coming into the chat and I will get to them in one minute, but I just want to build on that particular point um, because I, my understanding from your checklist is that it, it was kind of getting people to an optimal state of inner source usage, right? It's a, it was a kind of a guiding light to bring people in their maturity. And we have been talking in the SIG about this idea of a maturity matrix, which is why I was kind of asking, you know, will people self-qualify up the maturity matrix as they go kind of thing? Um, but so I'm wondering now, in, in the context of, of PayPal, were you using it like that? Were, were you kind of assessing people on their readiness and giving them a path to get to the next level of the checklist in that respect, um, was was that a kind of a tool that you were using at an organizational level to, to to manage that? Partially, what we were mostly doing at the very beginning is trying to just to get the basics done because of the fact that inner sourcing did become a buzzword. Um, you know, thank you, CEO. Um, but it you know it was too often meant I'm going to go collaborate with someone. It didn't mean the actual processes. And so we started doing um, you know the little shields on GitHub where uh, teams project qualify for a shield. So what could happen is if they did basic things like they had a contributing agreement, they had trusted committers in place and the trusted committers were not overtasked. You know, there were these basic things that we created on that checklist to sit there and say, this is, these are the requirements to officially be inner source and to get that nice little badge. And that badge was like an indicator to the rest of the company as to, oh no, this team is ready and waiting for you. You know, they want, to work with you. And so that was like an easy thing, which was because you know, some of the programmers were a little timid because they're like, oh, I really need this fixed over here, but you know, they're grumpy and mean, so I'm not going to do it. But if I saw an inner source badge, I know that they're not going to be grumpy and mean with me. So I'll go over to them and say, hey, 
that might be overloading the badge is it like in terms of like <laughs> but but speaking of that and I'm working backwards now through the questions but seeing one here about culture change and kind of thinking about the behaviors rather than the processes per se was there anything in the checklist that talked about culture change and behaviors and you know don't be grumpy and mean checklist but <laughs> you know? well, well, the biggest reminder was the fact that everything is public within the company and I think that helped a lot so you know probably the biggest one was helping new developers when they're coming into your code base and so the first one was basically sitting there saying you know new developers please make sure to read these things first before you talk to them and then for the 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 um the trusted committers especially you can't have you know the grumpy old dude who's mean as a trusted committer because that's just not going to be very productive and so we had some training for that in regards to here's how you work in a more collaborative way and not like that but I think the biggest thing that changed perspectives for a lot of people is the concept of passive documentation and they're saying what you say in chat is going to exist forever and we're going to have pointers to it to explain other people how to do what you just explained to that person to do you know, and so, um, and it was kind of funny because a bunch of the developers loved it because they're like, I'm not going to explain this five times in chat. I'm like, you don't have to just keep pointing them back to that original discussion. And then if they still have questions after that, build upon it from there. And so it was like, oh, okay, this is, this is good. This, this helps a lot. So a lot of this stuff was um, focused on that passive documentation and the fact that it's available to everyone and don't don't be a jerk because everyone's going to then know that you're a jerk and they're not going to want to collaborate with you and so that was like i think one of the biggest ones um, for the coding level the other one that was huge was the product owners um that one was actually confrontational at the beginning where they just weren't getting along this is mine this is mine no 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 and that was a long facilitation um, where we all sat down together and said, listen, I know all of y'all are overtasked. Here's why you're overtasked. Let's look at how we can improve this and how we can work better together. And one of my um, indications of success was when I was no longer invited to the planning meetings because they were like, oh no, we're getting along now. We don't need you. And I'm like, yes, but I'm still measuring your progress. You still need to invite me to the planning meetings. <laughs> but they had seen it so much as a course towards facilitation that they didn't think that you know it was needed anymore. And so that was a huge cultural shift was getting the, um, the middle management on board. I think a lot of times with developers, they're so wanting to do things like this in this way, um, even when they're, even if they aren't doing it correctly and they're writing bad code and they feel ashamed of their code and things of that nature, which is a big problem. It's people feeling ashamed of code. And there's several patterns, by the way, addressing that. Um, the one that I saw a huge amount of velocity on was getting middle management engaged and supporting it. And then once they did, a lot happened. Because remember, why do we have middle management? We have middle management because we have large companies who need to figure out what each other are doing and have that level of communication. And they're really that web. And so if you can engage that web to be on your side and to start communicating that stuff you know, um, vertically, then you know you can get a lot done that way because I think so often we worry about horizontal communication, not vertical. And with InnerSource, you can really enable that that vertical communication on that middle tier that really leads to some serious velocity and sustainability. 
Thank you. And, uh, you know, I really like this idea of don't be a jerk as being on the checklist. I think that should be for all of us in all situations, not even in inner source, uh, but a uh, good, good one that would be. Um, I want to go back to one of the questions that came in much earlier, just uh, to make sure we cover it. Uh, and that was from James. And he was asking, because even as we as we talk about this here, you know, we we got involved, inner source commons got involved with uh, Finos through the open source readiness group. And, you know, it's very often seen as the step to open source and organizations take it on in, the, in that respect and, and make their plans in that in that respect. James was asking, are you familiar with organizations who are doing inner source with no plans to do open source or, or you know, not necessarily with that in mind, um, specifically thinking about how the checklist might be for them maybe as well, just because, you know, obviously they don't have open source practices to, that they're familiar with. Right. Well, so first of all, on that, I would, I would argue that there's levels um, because, for example, I'm working with the military right now. And you would think never ever, but actually that's not true at all. They're using open source. And, um, and so the problem is, is whenever you're going to use open source, one of the major reasons people use open source is because they want to change it and make it work for them. And so oftentimes they still need to understand how open source works. And if they do want to contribute back and have that tool grow and then not just fork it and go down the path of there be dragons, um, they're going to need to learn some kind of open source involvement. Sorry, but that's just the reality. You want to do containers, you should be involved in open source. You want to do, you know, any of those different things, you're going to need to be involved in some fashion. Um, even if it's just as a user sitting there saying, here's the bugs. Um, there still needs to be some type of integration in regards to that. So that would, that would be my main thing there, James. I know that, you know, most people don't want to hear that, but I think that ends up being the reality of it. Um, now, do they want to create open source products? No, there's a lot that don't want to create open source products. Um, and so for them, I think InterSource works great in regards to just collaborating. It becomes a, a methodology of collaboration that I think is really important and a methodology of being open and doing that in such a way so that, you know, you can have good fences with your neighbors. You can have all of those different um, procedures and processes talking about things like, modularity and interoperability and APIs and things of that nature, I think are really important in a, on a corporate level. And honestly, you know, those silos, they need some little holes popped in them for productization anyhow, right? I mean, how often do we watch people who think that they're inventing their thing and they're not doing all of those paths correctly? Um, they're still going to need some of those um, tools and processes in place. So yes, I definitely think that for measurement, like Gartner style, uh, you know, it's really hard to get companies to reveal those inner numbers. It's really hard. And I don't know what the solution for that's going to be um, other than like maybe trying to convince them to participate in case studies or working with academia for some reason to get the PR, um, things of that nature. Um, I'm not sure how else to, to get them to reward that. You'd have to talk to Gartner since they're really good at getting people to do that. I'm not, um, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, James, don't don't have your back on that one. Well, it is it is something we are working on in InterSource Commons as well. So we did resurrect the InterSource uh, survey last year, but we would love more participants. So that is something we're actively working on and hopefully even working through with FinOS members as well. We can get more examples of that because we are seeing, you know, lots of organizations as well 
if if not, they may be involved in open source, but the folks doing the inner source may not be involved in open source. So we are seeing that spread of of, of the usage of inner source beyond those people who are so aware of of, of the open source thing as well, um, which which is really really great. Um, but uh, just kind of following up on the middle management, I'm seeing another uh, question in here, which is about the idea of getting middle middle management support. And I will actually add into that just in the context of because there's another question that came up in a, in an earlier call. Also things like basically getting have you any tips on getting support for, for 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 general management even like folks like hr people that you want to involve in the process who aren't developers and don't necessarily see those immediate benefits from that perspective yeah well that's that it's kind of funny because that's what i'm really trying to do now at ieee which is funny because i'm doing the whole open source thing but it is about the role diversity and giving people voices and having a way for them to communicate now, true, we're focusing on that from a platform tooling perspective, um, but you do have to figure out what that's going to look like from a cultural perspective as well. Um, tooling makes it easier and gives an easy place for people to go and do it where they, where they feel safe to go in and do it because they're like, oh, here's the place where I can put in my marketing input. Oh, here's the place where I can put in the bugs. You know, here's where I can go in and do each of those different pieces and it becomes a safe place to do it. Um, for me, <laughs> winning over middle management was a lot of legwork. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I don't like to admit that because it's not e exactly wonderful on the scalability aspects, but I have to admit that's why I'm focusing on the tooling for this next piece so that I can make it scale a little better. Um, but uh, I think the biggest thing on middle management is remembering the extremely tough place that they're at middle managers have the lowest job satisfaction um, if you go and measure anything because they're always stuck. They're stuck between behind you know, making their people happy that are under them. Um, and then they're stuck making the people on top happy. And oftentimes they are at extreme conflict or they have to merge those two together. And sometimes you know, one group's demands does not match the other group's demands. And so they have a really rough life. And so you just always have to remember that. And so one of the main things that ended up being very convincing at PayPal was them seeing the other middle managers obtaining velocity and also seeing their report outs where they were sitting there going, well, you know, you tasked us with making this and this and this, but we found out these two things could be intersourced with these other two teams. So we did that thereby saving us this and being able to make your deadline by that. And so being able to have those reportables was super useful. Okay, I, I just we thank you so much for that. And I will note as well that we have one or two more questions that we didn't get to and I'm sorry. Um, but what I will commit to is I will follow up with Salona afterwards and we'll see if we can get a little comment on that to share with uh, with folks who came along here. And I would encourage you all to sign up to the inner source SIG uh, mailing list and I will share it on that list too, but also with Grizz because he'll know where to put it. Uh, but uh, I will pass back over to uh, to the Finos team now to, because I'm sure that they may have some closing uh, statements, but I just want to say thanks a million Salona that's that's been amazing and we're so looking forward to following up on all of this in the next inner source sig uh, meeting which is next monday but maybe grizz will, will give us that update as well <laughs> yeah um uh, yes <laughs> we will promote that too um thank you Salona and thank you claire um for leading uh that q a and 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 again to the uh to the people that uh we weren't able to get to um Salona, I was actually going to ask, um, would you be up for a podcast sometime soon that we could fold in some of these questions and more? Um, sure. Put you on the I mean, you do podcasts, but uh, now I'm putting you on the spot. Um, so 
but we can answer those questions. Claire can follow up with uh, Salona on those specific questions um, too. And um, yes, the uh, the InterSource SIG meeting uh, is Monday, May 10th, um, 11 a.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. Uh, UK time. And um, uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Salona. Yeah, go ahead. These questions. Um, I see that some of these are actually in the patterns. So if you go and look and if you want some activities that you can do, some other um, guidance that people have done, things on that for getting support, there's a lot of stories in the patterns. The stories start off with, here's a problem, and then they talk about the multiplicity of solutions often. So I really recommend going and checking that out because some of those questions are there. Awesome, thank you. And I, I have other questions when we do the podcast too um, about furthering the checklist, but, um, but we'll get to those at another time. So, so thank you again to Salona Bonewald and Claire Dillon. And so that's where we're going to end our journey today with Salona and Claire. We will look to have Salona and Claire at some point on the podcast in an actual interview. In the show notes, I will drop information about her book and where you can find it for free to read. Plus, we'll have information about the inner source SIG uh, that is part of Finos now. And as usual, we at Finos want to sincerely thank you for spending your time with us, and we invite you to connect with our community. Join us at Finos.org to learn more about the community. Follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Join our Slack channels, and please subscribe to the Open Source and Finance podcast, this podcast, and rate it five stars. It really helps us. Uh, Join our mailing list for weekly and bi-weekly updates, and just get involved with the community. This has been your host, Grizz Griswold of Finos. Good day, good night, wherever you are.